We are in the book of Malachi tonight. If you're here for the very first time, you picked a good night because we're starting a brand new book. We just finished uh, eight Sundays in a row. We are in the book of Jude, and tonight we are in Malachi. And I am excited about this, and we will be in Malachi until we're done. Uh, one of the things I think that makes Lynchburg City Churches unique is we are expository. We like to go verse by verse by verse through a book. We're kind of less seeker, less entertainment driven. So if you came here and you were hoping to have a fun time and hear lots of jokes, probably not the church for you. I could recommend one. Um, if you're here to learn the Bible, you want to be challenged and pushed and made uncomfortable sometimes, then you picked a great time to come um, because that's what we're about. I don't care so much about how I make you feel. I care that uh, God's word is proclaimed among all the rest. So that being said, we are in Malachi. And I just want to start us off because tonight's introduction night. So there's so many things I want to say. And I've trimmed this sermon down uh, a lot. I've shaved so many minutes off of it to try and fit it in here. But I want to start with the author. Who is this guy? In Hebrew, his name means my messenger. But there is no information that's given about the personal life of this prophet. One commentator suggests that the prophet, and I quote, may himself have been either a priest or temple prophet, and so had seen the corruption of the priesthood firsthand. Jerome, the early church father, stated in his prologue to his commentary on Malachi, the Hebrews think that Malachi is Ezra the priest because everything contained in that book, this prophet also recalls, an opinion that Jerome is inclined to follow. So I pulled out my cell phone and I shot a text message to one of my colleagues in the chaplain corps. I'm an Army Reserve chaplain. So I shot a text message to Rabbi Goldman. I said, hey, Danny, I said, who do you think wrote Malachi? He wrote back, Ezra, obviously. I said, all right, thanks, bud. <coughs> uh, regardless of whether it was Ezra, whether it was Malachi, the author's identity in this book, it doesn't tell us any specific details about his family, his work, his circumstances. It's just rather absent. The emphasis is clearly not on the messenger in this book as the emphasis is placed on the message itself. In fact, a total of 55 verses in this book, 47 are the personal address of the Lord. The phrase, the Lord of hosts, it's used throughout the Bible, it's used throughout the Old Testament. It occurs more so in Malachi than any, of, uh, any other book. In fact, 43.6% of the time, I'm stealing this right out of the ESV study Bible notes, it was just a really interesting fact, 43.6% of the time uh, the Lord of hosts is mentioned, it happens in this book Malachi. Haggai, I think, is number two with 31.6% of the time. That being said, the emphasis, not so much on who the identity of this man Malachi was, as is, what does he have to say? And that's what we want to know tonight. So when, when was this written? What's the date? What's happening? What's the historical context? Well, internal evidence suggests that this was written sometime probably after 515 B.C. in the Persian period. I would pick a date sometime probably around mid-5th century. 460 would probably be a, a decent date to place this on. But this is the historical climate. This is what's taken place up to this time. And of course, so much of the Old Testament, especially the minor prophets, is just under this this canopy of the captivity, of the Babylonian captivity. Because of the sinfulness and wickedness of the people, God brought Nebuchadnezzar to execute his judgment on his own people, Judah. 
This happened on four different occasions, in 605, in 597, in 586, and 582 was the fourth deportation. Daniel in the lion's den, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, how did they go from home to captivity? This is all part of that story, seamed and knitted together. But of course, most people are aware of the 586 date because it was in 586 that Jerusalem and the temple were destroyed. And you may remember this, some of you who were here during the the Haggai and Obadiah sermon series, we, we, we talked about that. So 586, the temple in Jerusalem is destroyed. And the people are taken into captivity because of their sin, because of their disobedience, because of their wickedness. And they will be in captivity for some 70 years until 539 when there is a, a new sheriff in town. Cyrus and the Persian Empire is at its height And Persia takes over as the new superpower. And a year after this takes place, in 538 B.C., Cyrus issues an edict. He he issues a new law. For all those who are a part of this Babylonian captivity, all the people of Judah, you're now free to go home. Those of you who wish. And you can take the artifacts that Nebuchadnezzar had taken from the temple, and you can go and you can rebuild. In fact, I'll get somebody to cut a check to help subsidize the cost. You guys can go. And so this migration of sorts begins in 538 B.C. and the people begin to return home. And the people are living there for some 15 to 20 years and you would think that the first thing that they would do was take care of what needs to get taken care of. They'd rebuild the temple. Okay? Because it was their sin and disobedience to God that got them in this Babylonian captivity in the first place. Well, they don't do that. And if this is sounding familiar, for those of you who are here during the Haggai series, that's exactly right. So insert Haggai around 520 B.C. Haggai shows up, and the people have been there 15, 20 years, and they have not started to rebuild the temple. It still lays in ruins. And they've been making these excuses. Well, it's not a really good time. Well, we don't have a whole lot of time right now. And their priorities are so shifted. And I love going through Haggai because it's just, it doesn't matter whether it's ancient Near East history or today. People are so filled with excuses as they claim that God is number one priority in their life, which is ironic because the first thing that gets shifted when we run out of time or we don't have time is always spiritual disciplines. I don't have enough time to read my Bible, but I had enough time to be on Netflix and Hulu today. I don't have enough time to go to small groups because I've got to study for this test. Oh, you just found out about the test today? I don't have time to come to church or to come and spend time in my Bible and read it or pray because I got this intramural game tonight. I don't have any money to give to the church because I went out to eat a lot. It's always interesting. Our number one priority should be God, yet the first thing that always gets displaced is, tends to be the spiritual disciplines. And the people are saying, well, it's not a good time, right? Next semester when I'm done with this class or, you know, once I graduate, then I'll have time to do these things. So Haggai comes, and he lights a fire underneath there behind. That's the short version of that book. And uh, he preaches a really hard couple sermon series that says, hey, you need to get your crap together right now. The people respond positively, praise God, and they start building the temple. I mean, he pumped them up, okay? But that was back in 520 B.C., and now it's 485 B.C. And kind of like how you might go to a summer camp or a spiritual emphasis week, after a while... The fire sometimes wanes. You lose that 
momentum and spiritual apathy begins to set in. Well, that's kind of what has taken place. There's a new leadership regime, the Persians still calling the shots. Xerxes is the leader of Persia. It's 485 BC. And Xerxes decides to implement some different strategies as far as how he's going to raise money for the expanding Persian Empire. Persia's growing, and as Persia grows, you need more money. You need more money for buildings, you need more money for logistics, you need more money to pay your soldiers. When you're going to war and fighting battles, you want to make sure you have the loyalty of the soldiers. So Xerxes decides, instead of to shift the tax burden onto non-ethnic Persian entities, the provinces. And this hits hard, and this hits home for the people of Judah. Nehemiah, the fifth chapter, recounts the hurt and pain that these type of economic policies within this historical climax <coughs> have resulted upon. There was severe poverty due to high taxes. There's inflation. There's famine, there's confiscation of property, there's debt slavery at a huge scale. Interest rates had risen from 20% under Cyrus to 40-50% to by the end of the 5th century. Spiritual apathy once again begins to set in. It's been almost 80 years now since Haggai came and delivered his fiery sermon series. The year is now 460 B.C. and Malachi shows up. And Malachi commands the people to return to the Lord by renewing their commitments to his instruction. Return to God. Spiritual apathy is set in. That's not okay. You need to get with the program. And now we'll dig into the text. Verse 1. The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord. Well, that's good news. Sounds good, all right. You always wonder, is this going to be one of those fire and brimstone sermons or one of the encouraging ones? Well, it sounds good, encouraging so far. I've, I've loved you. Church, God loves you. Jordan Ginn, you're giving me lots of north and south right now. God loves you. God loves you, church unbelievers in this room, God loves you and is calling you to submit to his lordship and his authority to turn to repent and to follow him and follow hard after him. God loves you and this is good news. This is amazing news. God loves you and it should make a profound difference in our lives. In the way that we handle obstacles, in the way that we handle failure, in the way that we handle adversity, in the way that we handle those moments when we're not getting along with other people or someone hurt my feelings or there's a misunderstanding. God loves you. It should make a profound difference, right? It's, it's, it's not just head knowledge like, yep, I know, but it should transform us with this knowledge. And yet the people here respond indignantly. They question God's love. They doubt God's love. How have you loved us? Like a self-centered little spoiled brat. They say, you don't love us. You don't love us. They have become blind to God's love. They doubt it. They question it. 
They have become blind to God's love. And they have responded to the Lord's discipline with, oh, really? How have you loved us? You say they've responded to the Lord's discipline. Things aren't going so well for them right now. I just listed a huge list of things that Nehemiah, the fifth chapter, lists off. Things, uh, they have a lot of needs that aren't being met. Life is uncomfortable. Life is difficult. Life is not working out the way they maybe would have liked it to work out. And so, God says, Is not Esau Jacob's brother? Where are you going with this, God? Is not Esau Jacob's brother? Well, yeah, of course he is. Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. It's a strange thing. We've got to make sense of this. Why does it matter that Esau is Jacob's brother. It matters because God, in the sovereignty of his will, has chosen to enter into a covenantal relationship with Jacob and his descendants, and not with Esau and his descendants. Why is it Israel and not Saudi Arabia? Why is it Israel and not Iran? Why is it Israel and not Turkey? It just is. And it has nothing to do with anything that they've done, be it right or be it wrong. And we'll see that in a second. The point is not that God loved Jacob more than Esau. We hear this. God loved Jacob and he hated Esau. People say, well, it doesn't really mean that. It just means that God loves Jacob more and he loves Esau just a little bit less. I'm not seeing that in the text. See, what, what he means here, and the point is that God loves Jacob more than Esau, but he, not that Excuse me, the point is not that God loved Jacob more than Esau, but that he loved him rather than Esau. And to understand this, we need to understand the relationship between these two boys. You can read about their birth account in the 25th chapter of Genesis. But Jacob and Esau, they're brothers. Jacob would be the father of Israel, of Judah. And Esau would be the father of the Edomites, their relatives, their family. Edom would border Judah on the southeast. But the people of Judah hate the Edomites. They absolutely hate them. And if you remember our study in Obadiah, you may remember that during the Babylonian period of aggression, during the Babylonian captivities, the Edomites and the people of Judah were allies. There was this multinational conglomerate of states that had formed an alliance to oppose Babylonian aggression in the area. Well, before the Babylonians show up in Jerusalem in 586, the Edomites decide, might be a good time to switch sides and join the Babylonians. And they do. And they assist the Babylonians in the destruction of Jerusalem. In fact, when the people of Judah were fleeing the city the Edomites actually helped hunt down the people of Judah and turn them over to the Babylonians. They betrayed them, and they are family. And they hate them, and they despise them. God, you tell me you love me, but things aren't working out so well, and what about those people? Oh, God has something to say about those people. I have laid waste his hill country, and left his heritage to the 
jackals of the desert. Verse 4, if Edom says we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says, they may build, but I'm just going to tear it down. And they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Sometimes it may feel like things happen and we experience them and that other people are just getting away. They're not. They're not. Oh, God, the fact is, is God handles sin and takes sin very seriously. The people of Judah have experienced that. But their experience of discipline is much different than the Edomites' experience. People of Judah, it would be a temporary punishment. Babylonian captivity would be temporary, and then they would be restored. But the Edomites would never again exist as a national entity ever again. They would spread into what is a region known as Idumea, but that's it. As an actual nation again, they would never be. They would be designated as the wicked country, and God would be angry with them forever. So then we come back to this statement. Esau and Jacob, they're brothers. But what does that have to do with God's love? And that's the question that we must understand, the question we must ask. What part did this relationship, Esau and Jacob, what part did this play in the demonstration of God's love for God's people that Malachi is addressing. And for that, we turn to the ninth chapter of the book of Romans. I'm thankful for the ninth chapter of Romans, though I have not always been, because it is here in the ninth chapter of Romans where Malachi is going to quote, excuse me, Paul is going to quote from Malachi 1 3. It's a strange thing when you hear Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. Strange thing. How many of you have heard the well-known Bible verse? Just show of hands. God loves the sinner and hates the sin. Can I just see a show of hands? How many of you guys are familiar with that? Lots of you. Okay, put your hands down. How many of you are aware that that verse is nowhere in the Bible? Apparently, Mr. Woyak is. He stand up and raise two hands. We were together in Dr. Yates' uh, Psalms class when we heard that. Um, It may come as a surprise, the phrase, God loves the sinner and hates the sin, though we use it as scripture, not actually in the Bible. Who knew? I didn't know. You say, where where did that come from? Gandhi, the non-Christian political and religious leader of the early 20th century, he said that. If you read Psalms chapter 5, verse 5 and 6, you will hear something a little bit different. And that would be a good small group discussion thing to talk about in Psalms chapter 5, 5, and 6. So we're going to look at the ninth chapter of Romans because it's here where Paul, I'm, I'm looking at Paul, I'm saying, Paul, I need you to explain this because here in the God loved Jacob and he hated Esau, that just doesn't gel well with me. I don't like the way that sounds. And I'm going to be completely honest with you. There was a time in my life when I absolutely hated the ninth chapter of Romans. I did not like it one bit. I hated everything about it. And I hated it because my understanding of God was based more upon catchphrases, bumper stickers, and my own idea of what God should be than it was in the pages of this book. And I did not like Romans 9. And I heard 
from John Piper. When he was in seminary, he did not like Romans 9 either. He wrote a paper. He called it, he said, Romans 9 is like a tiger trying to devour free willers like myself. And some of you, I'm going to read Romans 9 in a second. You will not like it. And I'm going to say, I completely understand. I have cried my eyes out after reading this chapter because it has shaken my entire view of who God is. It upset me a lot. So if you don't like it, you're in good company. Romans, the ninth chapter. I'm going to start with verse 10. And Paul is going to recount the birth narrative of these two boys, Jacob and Esau, from Genesis, the 25th chapter. And this is what he's going to say. Say and interpret for us. I'm just going to read it, okay? Verse 10, Romans 9. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. We're thinking, how is that just? Well, Paul anticipates that question in the next verse. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. Verse 15. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Verse 16. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scriptures says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. You will say to me then, Why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. So, heavy stuff. He says, Jacob, I loved. Esau, I hated. He says, it's not, verse 11, it's not because of works. And at this point, you may expect him to say, oh, not because of works, but because of faith, right? That's what you might expect him to say. He says something very similar in Ephesians chapter 2, 8 through 9. Not by works, but because of... But he doesn't say faith. I thought that was interesting. Not because of works, but because of him who calls. That's what it says. Him who calls, or in the original language, him who summons. That's what it's based on. It's not based on, for Paul, faith in this situation... 
That we know that we're saved by grace through faith. But why is this happening? Because of him who calls. But why? So that the purpose of election might continue. So we see, when we see, what does it mean that God loves Jacob? It means that God chose Jacob to be his covenant people. Why is it Israel today? Why is it not Turkey or Iran or Iraq? Why? Because of him who calls. Why? So that the purpose of election might continue. And so for me, my worldview when I came to Romans 9 for the first time was flipped upside down. I'd never heard Romans 9 before. I had this emotional idealism of who God was and how he operated, and it was more reflective of that emotional idealism than it was the pages of the scripture. And I came to Romans 9, and my whole world was turned upside down for about the next two years. And I did my best to work through it and to resolve some of the things that right now may be causing you to be upset. I understand that. So what does this mean? Back to Malachi. God says, I love you. No, you don't. It's not Esau, Jacob's brother. Yeah, no, I loved Jacob, but I hated Esau. Love is that God has chosen Jacob to be his covenant people. All right, well, what do you do with this hate then? God hates Esau. He hates them because of their wickedness. Do you not see that? He hates them back in Malachi. Because of their wickedness, he actually designates them as the wicked country. And God says he's going to be angry forever. Right, that makes sense. But wait. It makes sense that you say that God hates them because of their wickedness, but Paul just said that God hated Esau before they were even born. Did, did I, back to Romans 9. Though they were, verse 11, I gotta make sure I get this right. Though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I love, but Esau I hated. Oh boy. Now we got another problem. It would make sense if God, if God hated Esau and the Edomites because of their wickedness, because they are wicked, because they were wicked, because they did backstab the people of Judah. That would make sense. But Paul tells us something else about the story, that this designation of hatred occurred before they're either born. They're not born. They're, they're not alive yet. They haven't done anything good or bad. And he says, I love you, Jacob. I hate you. Esau. So this is how I make sense of this. God chooses Jacob and he passes over Esau in his fallen state, thus deserving the hatred. God chooses, God loves Jacob, he chooses him, he calls him, and he passes over Esau in his fallen state. And in his fallen state, he does deserve this hatred. The message of Malachi here in the opening verses, in the opening sequence, is that no one deserves God's favor. No one deserves God's love. You want the sermon in like 10 seconds? That's it. No one deserves God's favor. No one deserves God's love. 
But God chooses Jacob. God sovereignly elects and chooses those who are undeserving and saves them in spite of their sin. And thus God decides who's going to rebel by passing over them. And they are lost in their sin. And yet we know there is no salvation apart from faith. And I want to be really clear here. This final judgment is never upon someone who wishes they were a Christian. There they are, Jacob and Esau. They're not born yet, and they are born radically depraved. They are born God-hating. You've heard the term sin nature? I'm just going to explain it a little bit more. They are born radically depraved and God-hating. They are not inclined to love God. They are not inclined to serve God. They are not inclined to worship God. They do not have affections for God. They are spiritually dead, according to Ephesians chapter 2. They hate God, according to Romans 1.30. They are enemies of God, according to Romans 5.10. Even their very thoughts are unable to submit to God's law, unable to submit to it, according to Romans 8.7. There is no person in God passing over them, in God not choosing them, in God not placing His electing love on them, that ever says, God, please save me. God, please choose me. God, please don't ignore me. That never happens, ever. Nor does God make Esau or any person choose sin and death. We are born that way. Paul says in Romans, the third chapter, Romans 3, 10 and 11, he says, as it is written, no one is righteous, no, not one. No one understands God. No one seeks for God. Esau and Jacob, they are born radically depraved and God-hating. They have no inclination in them to want to love God, to want to serve God. They are both on this highway to hell, you might say. Romans, or John chapter 3, verse 19 says, The light has come into the world, but they love the darkness instead of the light because their deeds were evil, because they love sin. Esau's situation is not, God, please, please choose me, please elect me, please save me. It's, I love sin. I choose sin. Sin is so wonderful. And that's the path. And God, in a Romans 1.24 type way, gives Esau up in the lust of his flesh and says, Esau, I am not going to run interference. I'm going to pass over you. I'm not going to stop you. But by the way, Jacob, i got a different plan for you, buddy. And I'm choosing you. I'm loving you. You're coming with me. I'm going to give you a new nature. I'm going to give you new desires. As one commentator, Salehammer, explains, although it occurred before they were born, God's choice of Jacob over Esau, it did not run contrary to the wishes of either of the two brothers. That's the point of this. God's undeserving love. They deserved nothing from him. If it wasn't for God, Jacob, uh, Jacob would end up in the same situation as Esau. His fate would be no different than the Edomites if it, if it were not for God's unchangeless and sovereign love. Their fate would be the same. Once again, back to the story. I love you. No, you don't. Really? Is not Esau Jacob's brother? That's right. I could have loved Esau. I could have chosen Esau. You're no more deserving than Esau. 
but I chose you. I love you that much. You don't deserve it, but I love you. Why? God is glorifying his name. Why? Here's the why. God does this for his glory. By placing his electing love on some, transforming their hearts. Deuteronomy 4, 29-31. Deuteronomy 30, verse 6. Jeremiah 31-33. to Ezekiel 36, 26-27. Ezekiel 36, 31-32. While passing by others. In this case, Esau. Exodus 33, 19. Exodus 34, 5-7. Why? So that his purpose of election might continue. Why? Well, Paul says it best in Romans 9, 23. In order to make known the riches of his glory. See, when you understand grace in these terms, the terms that Paul has set forth in interpreting this passage for us, it makes grace shine that much brighter. Grace, we just, yeah, we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in the person of Jesus Christ alone. We'd say, yeah, yeah, amen, that's awesome, right? Grace, right? You Grace this or grace that, like you name a church that or some organization always has the word grace in it. We throw it around and we sometimes fail to just grab onto it. But this is beautiful. This is amazing. See, when you see God's grace in terms of this story in Malachi 1... As Paul enlightens us to its interpretation in Romans 9, it makes his grace that much larger, like 10,000 supernovas. It's just exploding. Why am I a Christian? When I read this text, I just get so small. Like my world, like God just seems so much bigger when I, when I reflected on this text. And I seem so much smaller. And grace, it, its meaning is just that much larger. I'm a Christian because God loves me. And I'm just as undeserving as the next guy. I'm just as undeserving as Esau and Jacob. By grace you have been saved. And that is good news. But some of the Israelites, some of the people of Judah, they're not tracking this. Some of you, you're not tracking this. I understand. I know what it's like to not like the things I'm saying. I've been there. I've done that. And I have so much compassion. And I have so, so much understanding. I know what it's like to come to Romans 9 and hate everything about it. And years later, to love everything about it. And to see myself so small and God so big. In result is verse 5. Your own eyes shall see this and you shall say, Great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. Maybe not tonight. Maybe you walk out of here, you're like, I did not like that sermon. I don't like that Apostle Paul. I used to think, and that Apostle Paul, he just, I think he really misinterprets the text. I used to think that a couple years ago. Like Paul totally misinterprets the text. He, he needs to take a seminary class. I thought that. Like, that's what I thought in my mind when I came to this passage. Oh. No, you might not say it tonight. You might not say it next week or next month or next year. But eventually all will say, like the people of Judah, great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. Why? Because that's the message of God's love. It is undeserving. You don't deserve it. And we live in such a self-entitlement world today that we think everybody owes us something. 
Nobody owes you jack. Neither does God. By grace you have been saved. What does that mean? You didn't do anything. You little brat, as Malachi might say. <laughs> as the band comes, I want to pray. God, we love you. We worship you. We praise you. I'm just, I just stand in awe, Lord, of your amazing grace and love. It's so undeserving. We did nothing to deserve it. If it wasn't for you, we'd be like Esau. And I pray for those in here who are resistant to Paul's words as he interprets this text, Malachi, for us, who didn't like tonight. And I know there's people who just are struggling with, with these words, because I've been that person before, and I pray for them right now that you would help them to make sense of this. Holy Spirit, teach us, enlighten us, illuminate our hearts, give us a, a mind to understand these things, eyes to see these things. And I pray that we would be encouraged and that tonight we would be and feel that much smaller and feel you to be that much bigger. To feel that your love is that much more awesome and powerful than anything else. I pray this in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. In your name, Jesus, amen.